One of the things that I've often experienced when I drift away from the habit of being in the Word and then coming back, what I'm always wanting to return to are the Gospels, right? Um, and I also love to, to study all the other books, but it's, I think it's important. We are always coming back to the Gospels, right? Not because they're necessarily more important than any other single book in the Word. All of it is God's inspired Word, and we must be grateful. And, and each verse and word in it speaks to us of our loving Father. But in the Gospels, we really get to see the face of Christ. And when my soul is dry, more than anything, I just want to see the face of my Savior. And so we always have to return there. And all four Gospels, I don't know if you've ever wondered, why four? Right? Um, of course, some Gospels talk about different things, and other Gospels talk about other different things about Christ's life. But why, why couldn't those all be condensed in, into just one book? Right? So they don't talk, contradict each other, we know that. So why not just have one gospel um, that's divine and inspired and covers all these things? Why four? And I don't really have a particular answer for the number four. But I can, we can at least say this, I think, confidently, is that Christ is, his life is so important uh, for us, being our Savior, that a, that a single book, even a divinely inspired book, is not enough for us to catch all that we need to catch of his nature. And so each of the four Gospels are very different, aren't they? Um, and so Matthew, just really quickly, I think um, these are how these Gospels strike me. There are more scholarly studies out there um, about what the different attitudes and perspectives of the Gospels are. But when I read Matthew, it just starts off, this is the connection to the Old Testament, right? It's showing us the Christ who has been prophesied through all time and is coming. All the Gospels do that, but Matthew especially, right? It jumps right in with that genealogy, right? Telling us where this Christ came from. Okay? There's this thick connection to the Old. In the Hebrew order of the Old Testament, the last verse um, is the last verse of Second Chronicles, right? So the last verse in the Old Testament is the last verse of Second Chronicles, and it's this verse that's crying out, it's saying uh, this is the people of Israel exiled in Babylon, and it's a crying out, who is where is the hero, I'm paraphrasing, where is the hero who will lead us back to the promised land, to the land of promise? That's the last verse of the Old Testament. And then Matthew says this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and then it gives us that genealogy. So it's a direct answer to everything that's been going on in the old. Mark, I'm going to skip for now because we're going to come back to it. Um, Luke, I'd ask Miranda about this one because it's her favorite gospel. Uh, she said it's so detailed, right? Luke's a doctor and, and he's a physician, and so he just has this detail. There's so much in Luke. It's about the details, the little things that are going on with Christ. And John, uh, John is my favorite book, um, and for many, many reasons. But the thing I love maybe most about John is just how intimate it is, right? This is, this is the apostle whom Jesus loved. We know, of course, we know he, he loved all his apostles, but, but for some reason, John, he loved John. Um, and, and you can just tell this throughout the book, even in the beginning when it starts off with this meditation unlike any in the other Gospels. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. This is a meditation that, is, that has come out of years of, of this man who knew intimately the God-man, his friend and Savior Christ, and he's, he's just been ruminating on it, right? 
He wasn't martyred like the other disciples. He had a lot longer to think on, what, what do these things mean? And so even just right in that first verse, there's this intimacy of John giving us his thoughts on this man that he knew and he walked with. It goes on, right, in chapter 11, um, 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, um, in that Lazarus moment when Jesus' friend is dead. And, and we love this passage because we see Christ as this man who has lost his friend. And even though he knows he's about to raise him, he cries, he weeps. But we forget that John, the friend of Jesus, is also there seeing it. And he gives us that most poignant verse, Jesus wept. He was there alongside a man, not a normal man, but a man that he knew. It's this incredibly intimate thing. And then later on, when Christ is taken and he's put into the court, um, Peter goes along, but another apostle also goes, and that's John. John happened to have some connections to the high priest, and so he's in the court, right? As Christ is being tried, and the high priests are flinging these accusations against him. Uh, And just super briefly... um, Listen to this. This is right at the beginning. So, so Christ is taken. He's taken into the court. Um, and it says, this is John 18, And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. So John is right there in the court. And it takes a moment. And you see Peter outside by the fire. He denies Christ one time. It's this little vignette taking on outside of the court around a fire. You can just picture it in your head, right? This fire lit scene where Peter denies his Christ for the first time and then the the scene shifts for the first time into the courtroom right the the real story that we're seeing and it starts off this the high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine Jesus answered him I spake openly to the world I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple whither the Jews always resort and in secret have I said nothing nothing why askest thou me ask them which heard me What I have said unto them, behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? You can hear that John's standing right there. Right? Imagine, we can't even begin to imagine. Maybe we shouldn't, I don't know. But imagine what, what is going through John's head as he sees his friend who he thinks is the Savior slapped in the face and challenged. And you also hear the strength of Christ that he sees in Christ, even in this moment of shame, with Christ's strong retort. As he returns, ask those who have sent me. I have not hidden anything of my ministry on this earth. Right? Jesus the bold, right, standing in front of these false accusers. And then at the cross, of course, when Christ says, Uh, about Mary to John. He says, this is now your mother. Mary, this is your son. And so he gives his mother, his earthly mother, to John to take care of. So there's this intimacy in John that that is beautiful and I love. So John is always where I go to, but Mark, I almost never do. I'll have to confess that. Um, Mark has never particularly stirred me And I think at least one thing that's going on in Mark is that Mark is showing us Jesus, the teacher, right? Um, Again, all these Gospels are showing us everything about Christ. But Mark seems to, to, to me to really 
dig down that Jesus is a teacher. Okay? Um, the teaching starts by verse 15. Right? If you want to turn there in Mark 1, um, it starts off right there. Christ is already uh, an adult. John has begun his ministry. Um, and then by verse 15, Christ is preaching. Okay? So it's, it's already jumping in, which is very different than the other Gospels. Think about that, right? We're not, we're not taking a look at Christ's birth. We're not taking a, cri- a super close look at Christ and John. It's just jumping right into the teaching of Christ. And it continues that way all the way to the end. You can then look at the end of John, uh, at the end of Mark, sorry. From the crucifixion to the ascension, right? The climax and then the resolution of this book, that all takes place in two chapters, right at the end. And so the whole middle part, the vast majority of Mark is just showing us the teaching of Christ. Valuable teaching, wisdom from the creator of the world and the lover of our souls giving us this wisdom. How do we live? How do we pursue virtue? How do we become more like Christ? He's teaching most especially, most importantly about himself. Okay? And that teaching is beautiful. But as I was reading it, There's a particular part in the middle, just a couple chapters, uh, when something really stood out to me. I I want to encourage you, it's super important that we dig down into the details of each verse, right? Be like Luke, study it all out. What does each section mean? What does each word mean? Do the word studies, right? Study what it all means, but also be sensitive to the overall tone of what's going on, right? Isaac encouraged me to, I read a lot of books now, right? Um, And... So he encouraged me, read it like a book that you're going to teach in class. And that's one of the things you've got to be sensitive to. Because the author isn't just didactically, sort of step by step, telling you who Christ is. But even, because God is such an incredible author, every mood of each sentence is revealing to us something about Christ. All right? So I was reading along in Mark, starting in chapter 7 and, and through chapter 9. And I want to dig, dig down there. I forgot to pull up my phone to look at a time. All right. So, Mark chapter 7. There's going to be two sections that end up standing out here, I think. And they're very, very different. So I'm reading along in chapter 7. And then about the time I get into chapter 8, I'm struck with something. And I want to see if the same thing strikes you. So starting in chapter 7. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, sprays and vessels, and of tables. What's going on? Why are we talking about dirty hands and, and whether you're supposed to wash hands before you eat or not? Strange, right? doesn't seem to have a place when you're talking about the Son of God come to earth. Right? Remember that. So... The Pharisees come to him, they argue about whether they should clean their hands or not. And they continue on in verse 15, Christ says this, he does some more teaching here, some of this teaching that Mark's showing us. 
Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And he saith unto them, Are you so without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all meats. And he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Again, now Christ, it says defile four or five, even more times. I didn't count it. Again, it's repeating this defile. I get it. It's kind of dirty, isn't it? I was talking about filth. First we were talking about the filth of hands, and now we're talking about the filth that comes out of our hearts. A disturbing list, right? Adulteries, fornication, thefts, covetousness, blasphemy, evil eyes, foolishness. All sorts of filthiness, both physical and spiritual, going on here. Strange. Going on. Christ goes into the borders of Tyre and Sidon, right? Outside, not to the Jews, not to God's people, right? But to the Gentiles. And he, this is the passage with the Syrophoenician woman, right? And she's coming to him, begging for him to save uh, her daughter from a spirit. And Jesus says, let the children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it under the dogs, And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. For this saying, Go thy way, the devil is gone out of thy daughter. Another act of Christ's mercy. But what are you doing talking about bread and scraps thrown to dogs? This is strange, right? Christ saves a little girl oppressed by a demon. And yet at the same time we're talking about bread and scraps. The next one is when it really started striking me. He encounters a deaf man. Jesus encounters a deaf man. They bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they beseech him to put his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers into his ears. And he spit and touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and saith unto him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened and the string of his tongue was loosed and he spake plain. What? Christ is sticking fingers into ears now. Right? And it's kind of funny. It's, and I don't think it's blasphemous. To, to This is strange. Right? This is weird. What is going on? And so just the whole tone of this, right, is incredibly physical. We're talking about defile, dirty hands before food. This is just everyday stuff, right? You teach your children. You've got to go wash your hands. This is a daily encounter with filth, the filthiness of our hearts, the defilement that comes out of our hearts. Bread, scraps, dogs, and then Christ himself now is spitting on his hands and putting his fingers and ears and at the same time doing miraculous deeds to save a broken and hopeless people. So listen, it just keeps going, okay? So just real quickly, then he goes on, and there's another feeding of a crowd. 
right? And there's lots of talks of loaves of bread being broken, right? You can just picture Christ's hands rupturing that bread, ripping it apart, right? Uh, How many loaves have ye? And they said, seven. We're counting up how many loaves they have. And then later, uh, when the the apostles are disturbed, halfway through chapter 8, oh no, what are we going to do? How are we going to eat? And Christ reassures them, do you remember all the times that I've fed you? How many baskets did I pick up? And again, they count the baskets. We picked up seven baskets of bread, right? This abundance. But the abundance is countable, right? So again, we're stuck in the details. And then, not just a deaf man, but Christ in verse 22 will heal a blind man. And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees, walking. After that he put his hands again upon his eyes, and made him look up, and he was restored, and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell it to any in the town. So again, Christ spits and rubs his hands on the eyes of a man to save him. At least save part of him, his eyesight. So this is a dramatic shift. Up to chapter 7, Mark has been, like I said, giving us the teachings of Christ, which are beautiful and rooted in the real, in the everyday that we face, right? Christ's teaching is always eminently practical, even while it draws us to see Him. But here, all of a sudden, the the perspective has shifted. The entire tone is rooted down deep, right? In just the sticky, muddy, spitty, everyday of human life. And so I think Mark is just showing us through just the very tone of what he's talking about. Jesus was a man. And we know that. We cling to that doctrine, right? And we can see it. We can break it down. We can go to the different verses and we must do that. Build up our faith by good reasoning. But also see here, this is... this. Jesus wasn't just a man who kept clean in his high tower, right? He wasn't just walking among the noble, but he's spitting on his hands. He's sticking fingers in ears. I would not want to stick my fingers in the ears of a first century Hebrew deaf man, right? I don't know what kind of ear disease might be causing that. Maybe nothing at all, but either way, those ears aren't clean. But Christ goes there. He doesn't hold back. He's a man. Right? And Mark is, is just, if I could say it this way, he's hitting us in the face with this. Right? He's a man. He's a man. He has hands. He washes. He spits. Right? So Jesus is a man. And he shows us that in this really vivid manner. And that brings us all the way up to verse 31. Well, actually, no, sorry, not quite. Uh, Jesus goes out, this is verse uh, 27, and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea, Philippi, and by the way, he asks his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? This is the question that we should be asking after we hear all this physical stuff. Who is this man? He's obviously a man, right? But who is he? 
And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elias, and others, one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. He charged them that they should tell no man of him. Remember that. Peter confesses here, right after all that's going on, when that question rises, who is this man? Peter says, Jesus, I I believe you are the Christ. Thou art the Christ. And Christ, for now, urges him to be silent. We're going to come back to 31 and 38. But for now, let's go to chapter 9. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly when they had looked around about, they saw no man anymore, save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. Dramatic shift, right? Down in the dirt, mud, spit, dirty ears, and then the transfiguration. When Christ's divinity becomes completely clear. Right? He's transfigured. We don't know exactly what that looks like. Right? But he was transfigured in some way. Right? I love this. His raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow. You know, snow is so bright, right? You have to wear sunglasses or even wear sunscreen. It blinds you. Snow is incredibly bright and clean, right? So as no fuller on earth can white them, right? Incredibly white. That's the detail that we, that we get. So something so incredible, so clean. Can you picture something more different from what's been going on before? From spit to white as snow? On top of a mountain, right? Already a symbol of divine. And then along come Elias and Moses here, right? And so clearly we're getting here a contrast. Jesus is a man. Don't you forget it. Seems to be what Mark is saying. And he dramatically turns and just a few verses later he's saying, Oh, but Jesus is God. You can't forget it. And I think it's easy for us to mock Peter here, right? Or at least laugh a little bit. Come on, Peter. Elias and Moses are not on the same level as Jesus. We know that, right? 
Peter says, Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. He's thankful to be there. He's excited to be with such three prestigious persons as he now sees. He says, let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. And we all go, no, Peter, one of these men is God as well. And Elias and Moses are not. Only Christ deserves a tabernacle, right? So, Peter, what are you thinking? But I think it's worth stepping back and elevating perhaps Moses and Elijah in our conceptions, understanding how the Hebrews viewed these two figures of the Old Testament. And I think by actually elevating our perspective on just how incredible Moses and Elijah are, rather than diminishing the glory of Christ. That will actually emphasize the significance that then God pronounces that Christ is his son, and therefore higher than than Moses and Elijah. Okay? So, Moses, right? We know him well. Let's start with his death in Exodus, uh, or sorry, not Exodus, um, Deuteronomy, Uh, The last chapter of Deuteronomy, chapter 34. So Moses has led the people for a long time. right? But now he's finally dying. And it says this in Deuteronomy 34. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Remember, Moses does end his life not going into the promised land. He doesn't live up to everything he was supposed to be. But it still says this about him. He buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, over against Beth Peor, but no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. And Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. He was 120 years old, and yet he was not an old man. Right? At least in body. Well, that's enough to be remarkable in the first place. Right? But then this eulogy, divinely inspired eulogy, And there arose not a prophet, this is verse 10, there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses. Why? Whom the Lord knew face to face. In all the signs and the wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all all his land, and in all that mighty hand, and in all the great terror which Moses showed in the sight of all Israel. It says, there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses. The greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And you see that again and again in the New Testament, right? The Hebrews see that Moses is the greatest prophet. But on what grounds is he the greatest prophet? Is is it because of him and what he's done? Well, in part, yes. But remember the Moses who fled Egypt in terror, right? He doesn't start achieving these great things, earning this reputation until God uses him as his chosen vessel. Right? We can never f- confuse the vessel with the God who's working through them. Whether we look to the past in history or whether we look today to our leaders today. But the thing that most stands out here I think is in verse 10. There arose not a prophet since in Israel whom the Lord knew face to face. That's the really special thing with Moses, right? God communes with many people in the Old Testament but none quite like Moses. Not, not even David. Even though David is a man after God's own heart. And it would 
take somebody who's much more studied to go through and just show you how much. But think for a moment how Moses again and again communes with the Lord. Right? It all starts with the burning bush. Right? I love I loved to hear the kids that, that they were talking about that today. The burning bush. He starts there when God speaks to him from the burning bush. And it continues throughout the column uh, of smoke and the column of fire. Right? And it all comes to a climax on Mount Horeb. Right? In Exodus 33 and then into 34. And I look at this because this is when God really comes face to face with Moses. And we we can't be shocked enough by this happening. Okay? So if you remember, Mount Horeb is where Moses will ascend to the mountains, he will get the Ten Commandments for the second time. Right? Um, but remember, Mount Horeb is also where the burning bush was, the first time that God spoke to him. So kids, this is the same mountain that the burning bush was on. So now Moses has gone back to Egypt. He's, he saves through God's power. He saves the people of Egypt. And now they've journeyed back through a long and difficult journey. And they've come back to this Mount Horeb, where Moses first heard God's voice coming from the burning bush. All right? And he's going to see God again here, but in an even more dramatic Way. So in Exodus 33:21, Moses has ascended on top of the mountain. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon the rock. Oh, sorry, back up a little bit to 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by, and I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. All right? So God is going to show himself to Moses. Right? And, and remember all these details. Please try to hold on to them. Right? He's on top of Mount Horeb. Christ will show him, or God will show himself to him. Right? But not face to face. He will show him. Incredibly amazing. Never happened before in this way. But still he can't see his face and live. Remember all that. It goes on in 34, 6. The Lord now will actually pass. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, if now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thine inheritance. So God passes by reciting his glories and his mercies and his judgment. 
Never before is God shown in this way to a single man, but still not his face. And just by seeing the hinder parts, in 29, when Moses descends from the mountain, after carving on the tablets for 40 days and 40 nights, remember that too, 40 days and 40 nights, carving the Ten Commandments, returns. And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wished not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. God's glory. This is just a picture But God's glory is so amazing that Moses' face is still shining so much that the people are terrified. And he has to wear a veil over his face. I don't know when he stops wearing the veil or not. It it doesn't say. Um, That's how glorious he is. And that's just the hinder parts of God. And I don't even know what that means exactly. Right? So Moses is amazing. God showed himself to Moses. So much that his face shone, and people were terrified. Peter is right to revere Moses. And then Elijah. Elijah's story is amazing. We could zoom in on a lot of places, but I want to go to chapter 19. Elijah has just completed one of the most amazing victories of the Lord over um, the pagans, right? When he slaughters the, the wicked priests of Baal, right? It's a bloodbath. He destroys them. God's hand is shown so strongly, there is no way that fear could exist for a follower of God in, in the face of such a, such a testament to his power, right? But Jezebel sends a message in chapter 19 to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them, the priests, by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life. Elijah's fleeing in terror. Okay? Even though he has just done through God's hand in him, done incredible deeds, he's terrified on the run. Remember Moses. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. He knows he can't kill himself, but he's asking God, Please kill me. Right? Despair, terror. There is no hope in this man. God, kill me. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. Amen to that. The journey that God calls us on for each of us, whatever that may be, is too great for us. We need the bread and the water, the sustenance that Christ gives us to go on these journeys that he will call us to. 
Because in our own power, we'll just say, God, please kill me. If not worse. The journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. Sound familiar? Yes. 40 days and 40 nights, just like Moses' 40 days and 40 nights. Same place, Horeb. That's called the mount of God. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth, and stand upon the mount before the Lord. Sound familiar? And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind rent the mountains, and brake in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out. And stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenants, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And then the Lord assures him of the salvation that he has in mind. So Elijah also, on the top of Mount Horeb, 40 days and 40 nights, comes to see God. If you didn't catch it, the still small voice, right? After the wind breaking rocks apart in the mountain, right? Uncle Kiefer heard the tree, the the part of the tree that fell off my house, and he said it sounded like the earth was ripping asunder, right? I think maybe Allie heard it too. I didn't hear it, sadly. But these are stones ripping apart from a wind. And then an earthquake comes, shaking the very ground. And then fire. But it says God was not in the wind and the earthquake and the fire. And then a still, small voice comes. And that's when Elijah covers himself. I don't know what that means. John Gill says it. This, the gentleness, right? He thinks it's, it's echoing of grace. Grace versus law. I think he's got a good point there. But I don't really know what's there. But the point is here, for our purposes, God showed himself to Elijah and he showed himself to Moses and he didn't show himself to anybody else in quite that same way. So when Peter sees Elijah and Moses there and Jesus talking to Jesus and he says, let's build a tabernacle for each of you, is he wrong? Yes. But is it understandable? Yes. So what does that say about Jesus when God speaks from a cloud and says that this is his son? He is God. 
Moses never saw the face of God, did he? Makes that pretty clear. Elijah just gets a voice. And that itself is the second most miraculous showing of God up to a certain point. But Peter and the other two are looking at God in his face. And they're not dead. Okay? So Peter is wrong. It's understandable. But that's just how momentous, it's too weak a word, that God is is now just right there where they can look in his face. And it's made by Mark, and this is where I'm so grateful for the brilliant inspiration of God to have Mark show us this in this way. Because the transfiguration, I don't think, would have quite the same impact to us, even though it would have the same truths in it, if God hadn't shown it to us right after showing just how much of a man Jesus is. That he's in the dirt, that he's with his disciples, and he's breaking bread, and he's spitting and sticking fingers into ears. He's a man, and he's a God, and no, we can't wrap our brains around it. I say praise the Lord to that, but it's there, right? And that's the, the, best, the best that I've seen the dual in one nature of Christ. See, it's, even, it's tricky to say it, right? But you can just read it, and Mark's just showing it to us. He's a God, and he's a man, and he's both entire and now we can look God in the face. Right? But there has to be a connection between the two. And God, through Mark, gives us that. In verse 31 to 38. And I'm going to close as quick as I can here. Okay? This is the turn. This is the, this is the hinge, right, that, that keeps these two things together. How can we have, if you'd permit it, a, a spitting man and a transfigured white as snow God? How can they be the same person? I think it's right here. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. He's telling us God has more going on here than we think or can possibly imagine. Here it is. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also... He speaks this to everyone. He said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
So what holds these two things together? It's a picture. It's a cross. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I love in this whole section that he, he's just uh, prophesying, right, over and over again. He's talking about cross. The disciples don't know why he's talking about a cross yet. They don't know why he's talking about the Son of Man being ashamed. Peter just rebuked him for talking about being sacrificed. He talks about three days. I mean, he's being explicit here about what's going to happen. And they have no idea yet, right? But we go back and we read it and we see what's happening, right? And we should get excited. Yes, this, this, this is building up, right? This is how we can have a man and a God, right? What does the cross do? What is it? It's two opposites coinciding, meeting. There's an inherent tension in the cross, right? There's opposition, two lines that are perpendicular to each other, opposites in a way. And yet it's one thing, it's a cross, we call it a cross. We don't call it two lines, it's a cross, right? And if you were uh, thinking like a visual artist, when you look at a cross, all the attention just gathers it into the center, right? To the union where the, where the, two, uh, jo- uh, where the, the two limbs meet, right? Or the two lines on the piece of paper meet. It's a joining. It's a coming together. And there's a tension, right? And so it's a symbol, of his death, of his suffering, but also of his dual nature, isn't it? It can't not be. It's no accident that Christ, nothing, nothing in the salvific story is an accident. Forty days Moses spends on Mount Horeb. Forty, uh, Forty days Elijah spends in traveling to Mount Horeb. Forty days Christ spends suffering in the wilderness. All three of these men that appear on the Mount of Transfiguration have a 40-day experience of some sort, Right? So no, no, nothing is accidental, and the, and the cross is no exception to that. And what's glorious, I think, especially here, is that in the midst of this incredible ex- exposition of Christ's nature, it should move us to awe at Christ's, at God's miraculous plan that's been executed and foreshadowed in Moses and Elijah, and then now coming to full fruit in Christ in this incomprehensible union where he looks so much like us and yet is God there's a call inherent to it for us if we catch the glimpse that Mark is giving us whosoever will come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me and so right at the center of this heady vision of who Christ is, there's an imperative. Who will follow me? That means bearing a cross. Suffering. Right? We follow Christ and are taken up in his righteousness. We suffer by following in Christ's footsteps. We want to be like Christ. Christ suffers. Okay? Okay? So that's the call in the middle of Christ's nature that I think Mark is showing us. Christ is God, man. Um, 
I hope that these words, it's mostly just scripture, right? Just read the words of scripture and let, let God show you what he's trying to show you through every single aspect of the text. It is truly uh, the most amazing book in the world, right? Praise God.